I just want to kind of address a little bit of something in here this morning um, because there's this tendency that we can have, all of us as Christians and as non-Christians together, can assume there's this great divide about us and, and, and very mundane things. I don't know if anybody here thinks Christians are strange enough as to be praying over all kinds of little weird objects. And we do. We pray over everything. And, uh, but I don't know too many people who make decisions much differently than uh, about simple things than non-Christians. I think one thing I want to dispel this morning is that our decision-making process is very much the same. Um, that if we're sitting down, I'm looking at which washer or dryer to make, I don't go and fast and pray and, and ask God to enlighten my mind to choose the washer or dryer that is, that is best for my home. I don't do that. Um, I, instead, I try to do what most people do, gather information and stuff like that. And most people in this room, I guarantee you, probably make decisions with the same tool that, that everybody in the United States really uses, and that's called a smartphone, right? <laughs> you know, 80% of you guys probably have a smartphone. There's about 80% of us now that, are, that have smartphones, either they're an, an iPhone or a Droid or an Android or R2-D2 or C, whatever it is out there now. Uh, I don't have a smartphone, and I'm a little insulted that you think your phone is smarter than mine. In fact, my phone has an inferiority complex that is formed because of this, and so we're suing for defamation. Um, and uh, if you own one, you better get rid of it now. The, um, no, I'm being silly, but it is true. How amazing are these new phones? You want to make a decision about a purchase, you walk up and you don't have to go home and research and buy Consumer Reports magazine. You just beep. You literally, you click it, take a photo of the, of, the, of the price tag, and it goes off to the internet and pulls up your information and tells you kind of what the consumer report says and this stuff. And you're like, okay, don't buy that one. Beep. Oh, that one's good. Man, you're just walking around. You're in your car, and there's traffic. And it used to be, this was the response to traffic. Why is there traffic? You know, that was about how I responded to traffic. Nowadays, it's, is there another way around the traffic? And then your, your little phone starts talking to you because it's smart. And it starts leading you in directions. And, and we, 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 we go somewhere and we find out the rising prices of food at Albertsons. But you could find out what the prices are at Stater Brothers. And you don't even have to worry about it. It's on your phone. You want a definition of a term or you want an answer to a question. I've seen people do this. It, it's horrible to play games in youth ministry anymore with smartphones. Because you, you do a trivia game and you're like, who's this? And they'll go, it's so-and-so. And you're like, What? What's the longest name in the Bible? Used to everybody say Nebuchadnezzar. Now they type it in, they find out in like five seconds. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's the longest name in the Bible. Where'd you get that? Oh, you just text it. To, you text your question to this location, and it sends back the answer in less than less than a minute. I'm going like, this is ridiculous. I hope that, I'm under jeopardy. Searches these people anymore? You know. Smartphones have revolutionized so many things, but the problem with a smartphone is it can't answer the bigger questions. And this is really where the divide does begin for Christians and non-Christians. When it comes to big questions like, is there a God? What will happen when I die? Should I cheat on my taxes? I don't think we ask that question. I think it's more like, I don't have the money for this. How do I adjust? You know, should we do that? Should we, should we obey our bosses and stuff sometimes when they tell us to tweak numbers? Should we work our lives around, uh, around an object? Should I put my parents in a nursing home or in-home care? Should I, should I move to another country or should I stay here? Should I fear the future or should I, should I know that things are in control? You know, you may be able to find Wikipedia articles on all those things, but they're not going to answer your questions. 
That's where we rely not on a smartphone. We go to a deeper source. We start getting into reason, science, logic. And some of us in the room, we hold to reason and science and logic as, as that thing which can guide us. Maybe, I know a lot of Americans don't rely necessarily on reason, don't rely necessarily on logic. They rely on statistics. Statistics say that this is generally the, what most people believe. This is what, this is, what is true. We, we rely on evidences and we build cases and do this kind of stuff, believing that if we just had enough information, if we were smart enough, we could come to the right answers and become happy. Some people have rejected that notion and they believe in a tradition or a book. Maybe it's a book of Mormon. Maybe it's the Quran. For us as Christians, our source, our basic guide for life and answering all questions that are really important like that is really the Bible. And I know that sounds really strange because last week we argued that the Bible, and hopefully I showed that the Bible is an accurate text. It's not, and the way we're putting it is in this series is this, it doesn't have a lot of static in it, but it has remained static, has remained stable. And what we discover is when we pick up these eyewitness documents about Jesus and we realize they haven't been changed, that we have to change. And really we go, well, okay, that's great. We're glad it's a great historical book. I'm I'm glad it's a really accurate historical book. But why would you base your life on an old, ancient, historical book? That sounds really odd to people. Now, I don't think it's as odd if I put it this way. Everyone, everyone, as human beings, base their decision, their large decision makings on something that they believe doesn't lie to them. Everyone has a source, call it infallible. Maybe it's reason. Maybe it's logic. Maybe it's science. Maybe it's one of those things. But they would say, if, if right now, yeah, maybe it's not totally true at this point, but they'll eventually figure it out. Right now, this is the best they can do. I really trust the History Channel's history because they're very deep. They know what they're talking about. They do all the research. Look at all these scholars. Scholars know what they're talking about. We trust them. And so we have something that we feel like is at least valuable. Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it's my own thinking. Sometimes it's the cultural society at large. And we say, hey, we've made it here. It must be right. Look what science says. Look what we've done. And there's a general sense that we all have something we trust. I just believe that this is worth trusting because it's not just old books. We believe it's the word of God. We really, and what we mean by that, and, and as Christians, what we really mean is that if God walked into the room and he was able to really tell us, hey, and show us he's God, we would go, oh, and he says, now I got something to tell you. We would listen and we would obey, wouldn't we? If God came and spoke, we would listen and obey. At least that's what we tell ourselves that we would do. But we believe that this is really like that, that God spoke. He said, this is me. This is what I'm saying to you. Human beings down there, the ones that I made. The ones that I write, this is my word for you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a big gap from historical documents to the word of God. That's a huge logical, logical leap. To go from, hey, yeah, I get that these things are historical. Yeah, I get that it challenges me about the resurrection. I get that it challenges me about the movement of Christianity and history. That's tough to deal with, but calling it the word of God, that is literally God's words to us. Now, that's, that, that's a little far, and some people would argue that. And I, I don't think, and I, I have to wrestle with this. 
Because you know what? I got kids. You know, you, we, all have, we all have somebody in our life who's probably going to come across and say, well, why do you believe it's the word of God? And we have to kind of go, uh, I've got to come up with a reason because I can't just tell them I just trust it because I just believe it because that doesn't really satisfy what they're asking. They're saying, well, that's nice. Why do you believe it? And I just do doesn't work. I just do doesn't answer the person's question. It avoids the question. So how do we go from, yes, these are accurate historical documents that, that have not changed, and yeah, they challenge me to change, but are they the word of God? What do we do there? This morning, I want to wrestle with this. I want to dive into this question a little bit as we finish off this series in static. And um, just looking at this, I want to start in one, one place. I want to let the Bible speak for itself. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. And, you, and, I, and I hear it. I hear the bells ringing. I hear people going, whoa, wait, 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 wait. That's circular logic. The Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How, how, what, what are you saying? Let the Bible speak for itself. It's not as circular as you think it is. But let me put it this way. All of us encounter this in, in our everyday life. You will go to work. You will sit down at your house, you will, open up your, you will open up your computer or turn on your computer, and I'll, or you will turn on your smartphone, and next thing you know, you've got email blowing you up in the face. You've got all this email coming to you, you're going, oh my goodness, I've got tons of info. And you click on it, and what you're going to open is you open up this thing, and it tells you all this stuff, and then it says, from so-and-so. If I sent you an email, you'd have, hey, so-and-so, from Greg. Or, thank you, or, hope you're doing well, Greg Harris, All Branch Community Church, lead teaching pastor, 951-279-4477. You know, it'd be all this information at the bottom. But what that means is I'm authenticating myself. I'm saying, this is from me. Yes, this is my document. I sent it to you. It's from Greg. We all do this. We write a letter, we write an email, and we say, from us, because we want people to know it's from us. So you would at least expect, if this is from God, that he would have written somewhere in there, from God. And so it's not wrong to open the text and say, well, where does it say from God? Because I did that this week, and basically it ends up being 1,619 1, verses, not just times, verses. That it says, this is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. God said, the Lord said, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, 1,619 times. Verses, not even times, sorry. That's 5% of your Bible. 5% of the verses in the Bible have some form of from God on them. Now you're thinking, that's a pretty small percentage of the Bible. Not when you think about how little of a percentage it is when you write a letter. And you just add from so-and-so. It doesn't take much to authenticate yourself. But we're saying, hey, the Bible is saying, hey, it's from me. And some of us go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But these guys could be making it up. And I agree. That's the difficulty. That's the real difficulty is when somebody says, that's great that God said from God. So it's 1,619 times. You know, let's, let's really deal with the facts here. These guys are just saying it's from God and it wasn't. And I go, okay, that's a good argument. Let's think about the argument for a second. And the analogy I want to paint is this. Imagine with me for a minute that you've grown into the twilight years of your life. And we'll just say it's my wife for now. If you don't know my wife, that's okay. She's, she's a redhead, but she'd be old. So she, she'd probably be gray by that point. And she's about, you know, maybe, hopefully, God willing, she's in her 90s. And maybe she's doing some in-care. She has an in-care home. 
help her. My children have been nice to her and let her stay in her house. And this nurse has been coming for years. I died a long time ago. All right, I'm gone. I'm enjoying heaven. You know, and she's still here. And this nurse and her have grown to be friends. And one day they're in the room and she pulls out this box and opens the box up. And the nurse's like, well, what's that? She's like, oh, these are the, our correspondence. Me and, my, me and my husband Greg's correspondence are letters. I was like, oh, cool. You have some of those? I haven't seen letters in years. They start looking through them. And she's like, yeah, look at this one. Passing out some of them from the kids. And, and she pulls one out and she goes, well, who's this from? Because it's not signed. And my wife takes it and, and, and tries to read it and... And she looks at it and she goes, oh, that's from Greg. How do you know? She says, a little skeptical. You don't know if that's from Greg. It's, it's not signed by him. It doesn't. And she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. His fingerprints are all over it. It, it says things that only we did together. It, it talks about how he knew me and he only knew me that way. And in fact, even the way it's reading, I know it's him because I, it's his voice. You see, I had such a strong relationship with him. I know what he how he talked, I, I, I just see him in there. That's far more about what we say this is the word of God. Sure, it's authenticated by God, but really what's going on is you pick it up and, and, and what we do is we realize that we can trust this because we hear and see the voice of God inside of it. A couple of people who knew the voice of God, I think we, we wouldn't totally argue this, is a man named Peter. Peter spent three years with Jesus. Now, Jesus, according to the historical records, at least, like we learned last week, knew this, said that he was God and affirmed it by resurrecting from the dead. So Peter's at least hanging out with a guy who said he was God for three years and at least proved it with miracles and proved it with a resurrection. And he tells people, hey, this is what I heard from God. Now he's getting to know the voice of God. He's heard the Holy Spirit speak. He's had visions. He's had God speak to him in his life. So he's kind of a good guy to say, hey, I know the voice of God. And it's interesting that in one of the books that he writes in 2 Peter, he says this about scripture. He says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. This isn't like prophecy of knowing the future. This is, in general, a term that can be used of scripture. And he says, but none of this was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. These guys were, were taken in and taken up by God. His voice comes through here. He was speaking through them. Yeah, it was their voice, but you could hear God in it. His fingerprints were all over it is what he's saying. Paul, another man who the first time he met Jesus was knocked off his horse while persecuting the church. And Jesus appears to him, resurrected, tells him what's going to go on, gives him a vision. Paul comes back and starts seeing, Christ comes to him in regular intervals. He goes into heaven at some point in a miraculous manner of having a vision and hears and sees things that he says are unspeakable. In some sense, I think the guy's good at knowing that it's the, knowing what God's voice would sound like and having a, a kind of relationship with Christ. He starts to engage in the text of the Bible, and he realizes that the Old Testament is this. All scripture, speaking mainly of, the in, uh, mainly of the Old Testament, but I believe encompassing the whole, is inspired by God, meaning breathed out by him. Meaning that God breathes out his word and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Quickly, it is simply that he's saying God spoke to us so that we would know how to live well. And that this word, he says, is so odd because it does things that, that are powerful. One, it, it rebukes you. I mean, it tells you 
where you're wrong. It slaps you in the face. It halts you in your own thinking. It corrects you. And then it trains you on how to be a, a righteous person, a good person. In fact, it says it equips you for every good work. I find it fascinating to examine history off this statement. When you begin to dive into history, you begin to examine what the Bible has inspired. The first thing it inspired was hospitals. There weren't hospitals around until Christians started bringing in as hospitality the sick, helping them, caring for them, nursing them back to health, doing praying over them. Hospitals was born from the concept of sacrificing yourself around the sick. The second thing that we see is orphanages. Most people in the ancient days either laid out the babies and exposed them or aborted them, and the Christians would run around stealing, picking up the babies that were left on the ground to die, and the Romans called it stealing, but they'd grab them, run, and make them their own and raise them in, as orphans and form orphanages that were birthed into our society. And I don't think anybody feels like an orphanage is a bad idea. And adoption became part of this thing of adopting children who weren't wanted. See, in the ancient world, you only adopted the people you wanted something from. And then it rolled into the fact that literacy exploded across the scene in the Middle Ages and Charlemagne because we wanted people to be able to read the Word of God. So monks opened institutions to teach children and adults how to read. And primary education began to, to grow. Universities were built so that the pastorates would be able to teach people accurately with logic and to debate those who had been trained classically. And so universities grew to be something larger and were based upon an understanding of a Christian concept called the trivium. Now, I don't, I'm not going to go into that. But it's something that has classically shaped the way that we think as, as Westerners. The Christians dove into the text and the major scientists like Kepler and some of these other guys were Christians and they said, the gods of the order exist in the book. There must be order in the universe and they discovered there was. And a lot of the scientific revolution began. What we find is what's inspiring is it equips you for every good work capable. It's a powerful, powerful book for some reason. And Paul says it's because it's got God's words all through it. It's as if he came and said something to us, so we ought to listen and obey. Now, I've spent some time in the text over the years, probably not as much as some of you. Some of you have been able to spend many more years in the Bible than I have. And you've had a lot longer time to walk with the Lord and a lot longer time to relate to the Lord, but you would agree with me that you find his word in there because you know God. Just like my wife finds my words in, our, in my writings because she knows me. And what's interesting then is that as I've examined the text, I find fingerprints of God throughout the text. I find these fingerprints of God's knowledge and what he should know and what he, sh- and what he knows about me and things like that in this text. It is, it is fascinating as you begin to explore it. The first ones that I want to do is take us into this conversation of looking at some of these fingerprints because that's important if we're going to see that this historical document is indeed God's word. It should have his fingerprints all through it. It should, it should just reek of his personality and what we know of God. And the first thing that I notice is that it's it's hugely reliable about history and the future. Not just history, but the future? Yeah. One of the things we can discover is, in history, there's been, this book has been mocked throughout the 1800s for being a fantasy and a silly thing, inventing peoples that didn't exist, like a group called the Hittites. 
Now, the Hittites were mocked in the 1800s because they weren't found. There was no discovery of them. They didn't know where they existed. They didn't have any kind of archaeological evidence for them. And they would just laugh at Christians who believed the Hittites actually existed until the 1900s when they dug up the entire Hittite army, or the entire Hittite empire, practically. They discovered all of this, loca- this place called the Hittites. They had one of the largest empires before Babylon. And it was huge. And they've just continued to explore and discover more and more about these people called the Hittites. Now, nobody laughs at the Bible for talking about the Hittites. It's obvious they existed. And it's taken them a step back to go, wait a minute, we better not assume that this doesn't know what it's talking about in history. In fact, it's gotten so, so interesting in some archaeological circles, they laugh and they say, when the spade goes in the dirt, the Bible proves itself again as a historical document. In fact, we have an archaeological study Bible that has all kinds of stuff in it. And I've got archaeology books in my office that are filled with information that are confirming the things in the, in the biblical text. It's accurate in history. But that's easy to say because the people could have been there. And I get that. But what about the future? If God was really the one who inspired this, and yes, it says it's from God, and yes, we say, some people say, I see the the words of God floating through here, then he should be able to predict the future. What's interesting, in Ezekiel chapter 26, you end up with one of these amazing scenarios. Ezekiel 26, if you want to go there with me. It's about a certain city called Tyre. Now, I'll give you some setup. Tyre had uh, Tyre was the capital city with the other city, its twin sister Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were the capital cities of a group called the Phoenicians. Now, the Phoenicians are important. Why? Do you know? Because you're using their alphabet. The Phoenicians were a liter- they, they invented the alphabet that we are currently using. It's been Roman. It's now Romantic, but they invented the kind of thought of phonetics. Phonetic. Writing, you hear Phoenician, phonetic, that's why we named them that. And the Phoenicians were these people who were these seafaring people that went all over the place. And so they had to learn a way to do trade languages, and they would use their Phoenician to do trade languages all across the oceans because they were these traders on the seas. And they had this city, Tyre, that sat on the coast of the Mediterranean with an island just off in the distance that they had a second seaport city built on, also called Tyre. Well, it's interesting. They, they would mock Israel all the time because Israel liked to do some work with them, but Israel is considered a small little know-nothing country in comparison to the bigwigs like Babylon. And so they're mocking Israel, and in chapter 26, God decides that he, he's done with that. In verse 3, he says, Look, I'm against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army, and he goes on to say what he's going to do. Now, we can date Ezekiel at least back to 586, which was the time of the exile of Judah. Roughly in this time period, the people have been pushed off into Babylon. Ezekiel is preaching from that area in Babylon. And so he knows kind of what's going to happen, that there's probably stirrings and rumblings that Tyre is going to be attacked. So he, he announces it. God gives him a word, and he says Tyre is going to be destroyed. But he adds on detail that he couldn't know. 
It's one thing to know, yeah, I'm living in Babylon. I hear the rumblings of that he's going to go attack Tyre. Hey, everybody, God told me he's going to attack Tyre. Well, that would be like a weak prophecy that I would agree with is not worth looking at. The guy says something else. He says, look, you're going to have your entire ground scraped clean and thrown into the sea. Well, Babylon attacks roughly three years after the prophecy is delivered. We can understand that one. And he does. He comes up, he attacks the walls, he, and, he just, and he breaks down the walls, and he goes into the city, and everybody's left. There were some battle people, and they sailed across to their little island, and they sat on the island because Babylon didn't have boats. And they went, because they had escaped. And Tyre survives. And Babylon moves on. Congress of people, they stay on their little boat, their little island city, and they do their commerce and all their stuff because they got the boats and they rule the seas. And then along comes Persia, does the same thing. They run to their island. And Persia can't touch them. And finally, along comes a guy who's really bent on conquering the world. His name was Alexander. Alexander the Great from Macedonia comes marching along, conquers all this land, comes to Tyre, and he gets there. He starts beating on the doors, and they sail across onto their island. And he knocks down the city, and he goes, No! I'm not going to be beat by this. He didn't have any boats. He didn't have, a, he didn't have a seafaring unit. So he goes, hey, tear down the walls, tear down the towers, throw them in the sea. And, he, and this is one of the most famous episodes in Alexander's life. As they, his army, day in and day out, starts throwing loads of stones into the ocean from the town, destroying it, putting it in the ocean to build a causeway straight across to the gate of Tyre on the island. They march the army across, conquer it, and raise it to the ground and scrape the island clean. Slightly a little rebuilt later, and the Muslims come across, and they destroy it again. And then the Christians come across, and they destroy it again. And then back and forth, it just keeps coming until nobody populates anymore. It's just too dangerous of a place. What exists there now in the 21st century is a small little town on the island that's a fishing village, and that's it. They will spread their nets... In the midst of the sea. That happened 200 years. The Alexander incident happens 200 years after Ezekiel was even around. We have documents that are clearly pushing it back at least that far. How did it know that? Let alone that it would become a fishing village, which happened hundreds, if not a thousand years after Ezekiel. The fingerprints of God float through the whole thing. In fact, it happens again in the New Testament. Jesus is sitting there in this verse in Mark. His disciples were coming out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what the wonderful stones. This is beautiful. Look at this. Oh, wow. Look at these buildings. And it was the temple. It was the most beautiful thing they had seen. Herod had been working on it for years. They're like, oh. And Jesus goes, yeah, you see these things? Not a stone is going to be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, he didn't say, yeah, you see these things, an army's going to attack it. He didn't say it's going to get burned with fire. He didn't say, hey, yeah, we're going to run away and it's going to be empty for years. No, he said every single stone is going to be plucked up and thrown off of the other one. This text we know was written in the 50s, 57 AD, roughly in about 68 AD, Jewish and Roman relations began to just fall apart. 
The Jews decided they were going to conquer and get rid of Rome. They really wanted their own freedom. And so they rose up in a revolt called the Jewish Revolt. And they attacked. And in 70 AD, a man named Titus decided, we're we're done with this. The Caesars brought in armies. They sacked all of Israel. They marched up to the gate of Jerusalem and sieged it for a year. Finally, they go inside. And when they enter in, they take the temple and they destroy it by plucking every stone off the other to scrape the gold out and take it home. And in 70 AD, the temple complex was gone. Every stone being taken off of another. And every gospel that recounts that was written prior to the event. So much so that it's one of the reasons some people try to say the Bible's later than it actually is. And yet the documents have shoved us so early. How does it know the future? It's a fingerprint. There's a lot more I could go into that, and we won't, but it is a fingerprint of God that I found. The second one that I find very interesting is how reliable it is on science. Some people go, what? No, come on. Science has proven the Bible is not true. And I say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before we buy the myth that everybody wants to say science has proven the Bible isn't true, let's talk about this truth, this, this story. Let me give you the story that, at least for me, has been a confirmation in a lot of ways. In the 1920s, many people don't realize that there was a, the scientists believed, because of the mathematics, that the universe was infinite. You can hear the, the, the echo of that in the movie of A Beautiful Mind. Ronald Nash asked, well, how big is the universe? Oh, it has to be infinite. All the mathematics tell us so. And that's what they believed until Hubbard, um, Hubbard, <laughs> um, Hubble aimed his telescope into the sky and discovered background radiation, red shifts, and all kinds of things that were leading to the conclusion that everything was being pulled together to a center point. And at that center point, they called it the Big Bang. This common cosmology of the day is the Big Bang Theory in which there, everything is crunched down to this tiny, tiny, tiny thing that it exploded forth to become the universe. In fact, the story in the Bible is, is this. And theologically, we have said this since at least, at least the 300s. 300 AD, this was the story. In the beginning, there was God. And God spoke and everything came to be because he spoke ex nihilo. Big Latin term to say from nothing. God spoke and produced out of nothing. Space, time, matter, all of it. Heaven and earth. The modern scientific conversation is this. In the beginning was nothing. Then there was a big bang and everything came about. Space, time, matter. Wait a minute. It's the same story. They just left out the character that made it happen. And it's no wonder that philosophers have sat down and laughed. And the phrase is this, that when the scientists are done, they will have climbed the final precipice and find the Christians have been sitting there for years. And it's not to mock them. It's just something that they keep running into. The Bible says speciation exists. They were made in their kind. And as hard as we try, we can't cross species. For some reason, the Bible has some very clear scientific understanding about things. For example, there's an ordered universe. And what we discover is that the laws of the universe seem to sum up into a very simple system like E equals MC squared. A profoundly simplex idea is what they say. 
It's simple because it fits on a card. It's complex because you've got to have a PhD to even get it. Sounds like the same thing that you find in Scripture. Jesus bore your sins on the cross. Simple to say, maybe simple to grasp, but it's far more complex when you begin to open it up. If you want to talk more about science, I love talking about that stuff. We can talk about it afterwards. But the one that really nails me is how much this book, how much this book knows us, how much it has human psychology all through it, and it has it better than anything we've produced. You see, I find it fascinating that in human psychology, we're always trying to find out what the problems are and how people, why are people responding the way they are in their stress cases, situations, and all this stuff. We have all these theories and all these thoughts, and yet more people that go to counseling, the more people that get on drugs, the more suicide we have in our culture, and the more people need it, and the more depression we have in our culture. And I'm going, time out. It's not working. Maybe it's because the answer isn't to have self-actualization. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe the answer isn't because, hey, I'm depressed because I have a low self-esteem. Maybe the problem isn't I need more pleasure and I got too much pain. Maybe it isn't that I need to have a better intelligence to manage my problems. Maybe it's not that I need to have more fame so that I can have a better value system. Maybe it's not so I can have more stuff so I can feel more secure. Maybe those aren't the answers to the problem that we all seem to think are the answers. The Bible seems to indicate the problem is that we serve and give ourselves over to something that is smaller than us. Our ideas are always smaller than us. You can come up with an idea of God and serve the idea of God, but it's, you're bigger than the idea that you create of God. And so there's no health in that in religion and traditions and actions. And we serve things that are smaller less valuable, smaller than us. Instead, what the Bible says is, no, the first commandment is have no other gods before me. You are designed in such a manner that you have been made to run off of worshiping God. It's like having a car and all you do is keep putting the wrong thing in there trying to make it run when all it needs is gas because it was designed for gas. And no matter how many apparatuses and things we produce to make the car run, and we produce this big ramp, and we get it up on the ramp, and it makes the car roll, but it never runs. We have all these things we produce to get, thing, get results to move the car, but all you had to do is fill it with gas. And it seems that what the Scripture is telling us isn't that it's the problem. You're worshiping the wrong thing. That's what all the breaking is about in your soul. And that causes you to hurt each other. And that's why you have so many people hurting you in return. Because you don't love God and you don't love others. What occurs in us is a fracture in our souls that the Scripture is saying, hey, look, the answer is that you have to deal with the sin. Because that's all that is. Sin is the hurting of others and the worshiping of something other than God. It says you've got to deal with that. Because nature is created in such a way to be against you, spiritually speaking, and God is against us, spiritually speaking, because we insult him. And we hurt his creation. And it says, you want to know why you have all the problems? There it is. And then it gives what I consider one of those elegant, simplex solutions. That in your rebellion, you kill God, but God saves you. Though you want justice... You want everybody to be punished for what they did to you. You want mercy because you don't want to be punished for what you did to others. 
Yet God is the perfectly just and perfectly merciful being that was willing to take our injustice against him and turn it into our salvation. It's mind-boggling how simple it is and how satisfying of a solution it actually produces. And then he says this. He goes, yeah, and I know you guys are skeptical, so I'll do it in history in a time where you can test it by doing it in front of people who will write down an eyewitness history about the resurrection and the miracles so that you can believe and not just believe, but to have evidence that you make a verdict from. That's what's scary to me is that you get into it and you open it and you start reading it and it's as if it's examining you like a, like a lawyer. You're going like, don't ask me that question. Well, don't ask me that question. I don't, oh, I don't like that. It's like somebody who knows they need to go to counseling only they don't want to because they feel like it, it would show a sign of weakness or it's because, well, that, 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 that person's against me. They're for you. They keep asking me all the questions. And you open up the Bible and, it's, and you're starting to get examined. And you're like uncomfortable. So you go put a shit away and they go, you ever read the Bible? Yes, I have. Really? You really read it? Because what's odd to me is that is a huge fingerprint on how it knows the human soul and how it knows the human character. These are just some of the fingerprints that we can find. And then you run into... So, so you got God sitting here going, from God, from God. You got guys going, this, I, I see God's voice all through this. You've got us looking and finding fingerprints that, about what God would know and how he would speak to us and what he would challenge us and how he knows us. And then you run into the fact that the historical resurrected Jesus said he was the son of God. He's like, hey, I'm the son of God. Last time I checked, sons usually know their dad's voices. Anybody want to agree with me on that one? Sons and daughters know their parents' voices. How many of you walked in your house one day and you just saw your dad and he's standing there somewhere and you go, ooh, not a good time to cross dad's path. You could just tell he had had a bad day from work. And you're like, video games sound good. You know, you just want to go do something else. Or, he's, or he comes up to you with that presence and you're going, I'm dead meat. You just know their voice. You know how they're going to respond. You know their body language. You have a relationship with them that's so clean and clear. Jesus says, hey, I'm the son of God. He proves it with the resurrection. We can go back to that other sermon last week. You can look at that historical stuff. But what goes on here is simply this, that it seems the eyewitnesses are saying, yeah, he said that, and yeah, he was right. And then Jesus goes, yeah, and my dad's voice is all through this thing. In Mark, or sorry, Matthew, it's interesting that he, this is a phrase. He says, and, and God answered, and, God, and, and he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus says, Look, have you not read that the, God, the creator said this? For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. How many of you have heard of red-letter Christians? They call themselves red-letter Christians. They, they say, I believe all the red letters. That's pretty much, they're like, the black ones? No, we believe the red ones. Because that's what Jesus said. And we trust what Jesus said. Red-letter Christians. I find it funny because Jesus is saying the, the black letters are just as inspired as the red ones. Because when he says the, the, that God said this, for this reason man shall leave his father and mother, go read it in Genesis chapter 2. God didn't say that. The narrator said that. It would be in black, not in red. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. You see, all of it, black and red together, is the word of God. 
And Jesus is going, hey, I'm the son. I know my dad's voice. That's my dad's voice. And then he does something odd because he, you know, you're sitting there with Jesus and you know he's the son of God and you know that, in fact, he's even claimed he is God and you, you believe in that. And Jesus resurrects from the dead. And you can you imagine what the apostle Peter's doing? He's sitting there going, okay, what was that story again? They're all sharing with each other, trying to remember all what Jesus said. I'd be freaked out to forget something. Because if God came and said something to me, I'd want to remember it. I'd be freaking out. Okay, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember all this. He said three years worth of stuff. I can't remember three years what my dad said. How am I going to remember what God said? And Jesus had already dealt with this. In John, we have Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he's going to be crucified. These guys, the helper, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside you like me, the Holy Spirit from the Father will send in my name, that he will send in my name. He will teach you all things. That's not like they're going to learn physics. That means this. I'll bring your remembrance all that I said to you. He will teach you all the important things to the spiritual life. The things that I've told you, he'll bring back to your mind, John chapter 16 says. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So the spirit, this presence of Jesus himself, is with them now. And he promises them that you'll remember what I said and I'm going to lead you into the truths for life so that you can be sure that what you have is from God. And what's interesting here is Jesus is promising the New Testament. And he's coming to this place. He's going, guys, you're going to find it does the same thing. My father's fingerprints will be all over it. It's going to be the same truths. Whatever you hear, speak this close to you. It's like a perfect teacher. If if you've ever taught, the best thing is to watch somebody light turn on, right? You're teaching somebody something, and they finally get it. And then they write it down, and they say, is this what you mean? Or they repeat it back, but they say it in their words. They don't say it like you said it, because you're not looking for them to just back to you what you said. You you don't want them to ape you. You want to see that they understood. And so they say it back, and you go, exactly, that's what I said. That's exactly what I meant. And that's what's going on here. The Spirit of God is the perfect teacher, and he's with them. He's teaching them the things of Christ, and they're going, yeah, and they're writing it down, and Jesus is going, exactly what I said. That's exactly what I meant. And that's what we have. The Spirit of God coming along, leading them to give us his words in human words. It's a powerful thought when we begin to realize that. What you have here is God saying, yes, from God, People going, I see God's word. I see God all through it. You look and we find his fingerprints throughout the text of knowing the future and knowing the past, understanding scientific ventures before we even discover them, of coming to the understanding of the human soul in such a way that is powerful. And then his son, proven by a resurrection, says, yeah, that's my dad's word and I'm going to give you more. You know, it leads to the final thing, and this is the hardest one because it's about an experience-based argument. His, vo- his voice clarifies it. See, when you come to Christ, God's promised that his presence is with you. And I can't explain it, but every Christian I know attests to the same thing, that suddenly God is there. I have a friend who was visiting. And for years, he, he's been a part of my life, and he, he swore he was a Christian, and, I, and I'd sit there and talk to him. He, he, know, he knew Christianity. He even was trying to get involved in some stuff at the church and teaching, and a crisis hit his life. And he was sitting there in the crisis. He went to visit another pastor in another state because he had moved. And he sits down with the guy and starts telling the guy, says, well, tell me about your testimony. He starts telling the story that he's told us a thousand times. And I've always been like, really, dude? You know, there's not more to this. 
And um, finally, this this guy just says it straight to him. I don't think you're saved. You've been trying to do it your way the whole time. And look where it's brought you. And it just knocked my friend over. He went out for a walk. And as he was walking along, he, 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 he just felt like something had happened. And he felt like he made peace with God. And he gave his life to Christ. And he emailed me about this whole thing. And I kind of emailed back like, really, what's going on? So he came to my house um, a few weeks ago. And he sat down. And I said, okay, so tell me the difference. How do you know? What, 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 what changed? He's like, I don't get it. But you guys always talking about how God's presence was in your life. And it's like he doesn't stop talking. It's like he's always there. And I'm like, oh, you didn't experience that before? <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, well, I guess something, something did happen then, didn't it? Because he had a clear, distinct difference between what had happened in the past and what had happened there, something that I felt since the day I became a Christian in eight, at 18, something that has been true for me, that scripture pops into your head, things that I just barely read. You feel suddenly convicted about sin that you didn't really care about before. You know what this is like. The craziest thing for me was I was baptized when I was 10. And we kind of didn't go to church much after that. And um, junior high rolled around. I jumped into a into church and I got to sit down and came home. I was so excited. I, I went and found my old little Bible, my living Bible. It's kind of a paraphrase. And I opened it up I'm like, I'm just going to read something. I flip it open to Ecclesiastes. And I, <laughs> and I just start reading it. I'm like, this is great. Because just something was just, it was just making sense and things were falling together. And I was in junior high, so I don't really know how much sense it made. But um, by the time I became really dedicated to the Lord at 18, I have that Bible that my mom bought me, that original Bible. I could not put it down. The book of James is where I started, and I just have notes all over that thing. And I just scoured that thing. Because something switched for me. It wasn't just interesting. It suddenly had weight. It was just suddenly the word of God, which was, you know, down here, easy to examine. And, you know, I can stand over and look at it. Suddenly was above me examining me. And I'm going, oh, don't look at me there. It was exposure. The only way I can say this is that when you finally hear the voice of Christ, you realize and you see the voice of Christ. It says in John... My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's something about the voice of Christ that when he calls you and you follow him, you learn it and you know it. And I trust you, if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, right? And what's weird is that it shows up in here, and you don't even expect it. I understand if you're skeptical, because the Bible talks about that too. 1 Corinthians says, not natural man, somebody who's not saved, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to them. And he can't understand them because they're not appraised with logic and wisdom of the earth, is what he's saying, because it's the context. But they're appraised spiritually. They're come to an understanding through the Spirit of God. What I mean by that is that something about this book suddenly comes to life. It lights up. It makes sense. Where it was irrelevant before, suddenly it's extremely relevant. Trust me, I would not have given my life to studying one book. Because I love inventing. But for some reason, this thing continues to unfold and reveal all his fingerprints and invade my life and our lives in such a way that it's ridiculous that God truly has spoken. So we don't have to, as Christians, hear me out real quick, you don't have to sit around waiting for God to give you some kind of knowledge by praying and praying and praying. 
Oh, God, show me what you need me to do. Just speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. Nope, 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 time out. He already did speak. We need to listen and obey. It's here that he's spoken the clearest. It's here that we learn to obey. If you're not a Christian, you know, that argument may not hold a lot of water with you. That's why I challenge you to continue to go back to last week and read the history. Look at the historical text. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, and he really rose from the dead, as the eyewitnesses claim, and you can't deal with the resurrection, you're going to have to do something with it. Once you've solved that problem, and you see this hasn't changed, and his message hasn't changed, we got to change. we got to shift. And I guarantee you, once that happens, it's just... You start hearing, you start to get to know him, and you'll start to see this indeed is the word of God. And I'm not saying, oh, just believe it because I believe it. There are reasons. You can go through more prophecy and more scientific evidence and all that kind of stuff. We can do that all day, but it's just a brief kind of conversation. And that's my challenge to you. If you're a questioner, if you're somebody looking at it, if you're seeking things out, you're looking through things, run after them. Check it out. Check out the history. I guarantee you, God will not let you down.